Hi everyone, this is Deb from Dying to be Found. I wanted to take a moment to tell you about our true crime podcast. Every week, I pull in different family members to talk about true crime. We don't always discuss high-profile crimes, though. We leave the format completely open to your interpretation and also cover missing persons, cold cases, and other criminal activities. Starting in Season 2, we're adding bonus episodes and drop-in guests from other podcasts. You can listen to brand new episodes every Thursday and every Wednesday with our new mini-episodes called The Dash. Be sure to tune in wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on social media at Dying to be Found. Talk to you soon, tell your friends, and don't forget to leave a five-star review. Crime Scenes and Cupcakes is a true crime investigative podcast. We discuss cases regarding the assault, murder, sexual assault, or cases involving the abuse or abduction of adults or children. These topics can be very disturbing and a trigger to many individuals, so please listen accordingly. If you or someone you know is struggling or in crisis, help is available. You can text, call, or chat 988. This is available 24-7. It is also available in multiple languages for anyone who needs mental health related or suicide crisis support. It can connect you with trained crisis counselors. Also, if you are in Wichita, there is a local crisis center. Call 316-660-7500. Guys, it's Marianne, Dog Mom Baker, True Crime Podcast Maker, and today we're going to be discussing a couple of cases we've already discussed before. But as I've talked about, we are not like a regular podcast. We're an investigative podcast. I don't know, starting trying to throw a little mean girls in there. I don't think I pulled Regina George off, but. We try to dig into more than just what is out there in clippings. We try to talk to family members. We try to talk to local law enforcement. We go back to the scenes, even though it's been 10, 15, 20, sometimes 30 years later. We want to get a feel. We want to get a feel of what is going on, which is why we try to cover cases more in the Kansas area, because that allows us to do that. And these cases, a lot of times, these are cases people don't talk about anymore. These are cases that are sitting on the detective shelves, and I'm sure these detectives and these police departments are looking at them, but we have the time to look at them and the leniency to look at them in a way that they don't. Now, they have the information to look at these cases in a way that we don't. So I want to caveat this with, it's my podcast, my opinion. Nothing I am saying is set in stone. However, when I am looking at this case 
and I am looking at this other case that we're going to launch into, there are some similarities that have been driving me bonkers and I can't hold it in anymore. I have to share it with all of you. Now, there is one amazing listener who we're going to be covering some certain aspects of some cases together because she is just my true crime touchstone. She is the person I go to to number one because she had a family member taken from her by a serial killer. And I am honored at the fact that she wants to share that story with me. And number two, she has an eye for looking at a crime in a way that is absolutely amazing. So I have a lot of discussions with her about when I have a theory, when I am trying to pull at a thread she's incredible. So we're going to have more of a discussion on this later. We're discussing the developments on the Hutchison abduction, sexual assault, and murder of Gail Sorensen in February of 1977 and how it might relate to the Wichita abduction and murder of Mary Krupper in September of 1979. We're hoping you might recognize one of the suspects or even a piece of evidence as we discuss these cases. On February 11th, 1977, Gail A. Sorensen. She left her job as a receptionist at Evergreen Manor Nursing Home at 2301 North Severance, Hutchison, Kansas, around 9.30 a.m. Friday morning to make a bank deposit and just run a few errands for her employer. It's worth noting that it's been stated in reports that she had around 1,800 to 1,700 for the deposit, but only around $300 of it was actually in cash. Now, after not returning to work, her coworkers, they started becoming really concerned. So they notified her husband, Larry Sorensen. Now, Larry and Gail had only been married for a few months, and he was a serviceman. But he agreed, this is not like Gail at all. So he called the police. And Gail, she was a really quiet person. She didn't have a lot of friends, but she also didn't have a lot of enemies. Actually, she didn't have any enemies. So no one could think of any type of harm that could come to Gal or that she could be in any type of trouble. Now, one witness, while they were starting to look for Gal, a witness did come forward and they were interviewed. And they said they observed a vehicle of Gal's and she had this really cool Mustang. And so they that, that car stuck out to them. And they said they observed Gail in a Dillon's parking lot and they said it looked like Gail was in the driver's seat and they said that there was an unknown white male standing outside of the driver's door talking to the driver. She said it looked like they were both laughing so she assumed that they had to have known each other. 
Now, this unknown white male was described as being between 26 to 28 years of age. Now, remember, she was looking at them from a distance. So, you've always got to take that witness description with a grain of salt, especially when you're seeing them from across a parking lot. She said they were about 5 foot 10 to 6 foot tall, shaggy brown hair, was about color length, maybe a little bit longer, but they were wearing a hat. So you know how a hat kind of pushes down the hair. They also had on about wire-framed glasses with a brown lens. They had on a red stocking cap, and he also had on a mustache with a goatee. Well, after this occurred, Gail Sorensen's body was discovered in southeast Hutchinson along the Arkansas River. Her throat had been slashed and she had been sexually assaulted. We're going to get into that more later, but I want to bring up something. For those of you not familiar with the Mary Krupper case, it's in our archives, but there's some familiarity between the Gail Sorensen case and the Mary Krupper case because Mary Krupper had left home around 5 p.m. in Wichita, Kansas on September 8th of 1979. She ran to her local grocery store just to pick up a few items for dinner. After not returning home for a while, her husband reports her missing. Her body was found four days later. It's also reported that Wichita police detectives, that a man had been attempting to abduct multiple women from that same grocery store that Mary Krupper was last seen at. This man was described as being between 30 to 35 years old, brownish colored hair. He was not wearing a hat, so they got a good look at his head. His hair was combed back on the sides and it was balding a little in the middle. He had dark rimmed glasses. Now, the one thing that was told to police about this man in the Mary Krupper case was that he drove at the time a brown Maverick. It was about a 72 or 73 Maverick four door with chrome around the sides and around the doors. So that's one thing to keep in mind as we're talking about this case. Now let's go back to Gail Sorensen's case. I hope you guys don't get whiplash, but I want to keep these two cases going. So as they're looking for Gail, they ended up finding her car at that Dillon's parking lot at 734 East 4th Street in Hutchison. What's interesting is the car wasn't locked and the keys were in the ignition. As I said, it was a pretty cool Mustang. So what would happen to make a woman leave her car? with the keys still in the ignition and the doors unlocked. This guy she was in a conversation with that this other bystander had said, oh, we thought they were friends the way they were conversing. What would make you want to leave, even if you were friends with that person, would you really just leave your car there in a vulnerable position like that? A car especially as cool as a car Gail Sorensen had. Because at the time, remember, she was in the car. She was sitting in the driver's seat. Yes, they were laughing, as that bystander had said, that they thought they had saw. 
but she was in the driver's seat. What would make her leave the car? Not only that, she left the car and she took her purse. So as they're continuing looking for Gail, they finally find her. A man named Larry Hudson had been out looking for crows in this remote area and comes across Gail's body. What's really interesting, though, is this is an area that's difficult to get to. Even investigators said that this area was padlocked. They weren't sure how the killer got to it. I'm not quite sure how Larry Hudson had found her body. They did say that you could see the body from across the other side of the river. So maybe that's how he had seen it and called police. Now, due to the blood and some additional evidence, it's believed that Gail was, that was a primary crime scene, was that side of the river. Investigators also say that there weren't any vehicle tracks or footprints that investigators linked to the exact case. And again, the area was padlocked. That's a big thing for investigators trying to figure out how the killer had gained entry. There were reports of a white car that was in the area that Saturday night and Sunday morning when her body was discovered. Another thing of interest is the zippered bag that was used for the deposit that Gail was taken, that was supposed to be taking to the bank for her employer, that's never been found. Neither has Gail's purse. What would be really great is if the Reno County Sheriff's Department would give us a description of Gail's purse. I don't know if her husband, I mean, a lot of husbands don't know what their wife's purse looks like, but maybe a coworker might have. It would have been really great if we could have got a description of Gail's purse or a picture or description of that deposit bag, I think could have been incredibly helpful even today. It would be incredibly helpful as we're looking into this and it might trigger a memory for those who might remember something about this case or for somebody who might not even know they knew somebody who was associated with this case. Also, what's really interesting is two years prior to Gail Sorensen's murder, a man had attacked a woman in a store parking lot with a knife multiple times. In one case, the man had forced the woman to drive to a rural area, and this is in the Hutchison area. And in that rural area, he sexually assaulted her. That woman did live though. And in the second case, a man had approached another woman and began threatening her. They believe it was the same man, but when a person drove up, the man was frightened away. And again, this harkens me back to Mary Krepper's case. At the farmer's market where Mary Krepper was last seen on September 8th of 1979, a 20-year-old woman was shopping and a man was following her around the store that day. And he began to make her feel really uneasy. So she leaves the store. And the man follows her out and he then tries to force her into his brown maverick. 
she scuffles with him she gets away and it's not far away from a Cargill meatpacking plant, which has a guardhouse. She's able to get to the guardhouse. The man sees she's making it to the guardhouse and he leaves. Obviously, he doesn't leave very long because eventually he makes it back to the farmer's market and attempts to abduct another woman. This same man was seen following Mary Crupper at that same grocery store prior to her going missing. Now, another thing that is really interesting in the Gail Sorensen's case, but I don't, I only found it in one news article and investigators had discounted it back in 1977, but I'm hoping it triggers someone's memory today because I do think this might be important to the case or it could not be, but anything and everything could be helpful. Someone had crudely carved a message and this message was found in a bathroom at the Hutchinson Cessna Fluid Productions plant. And this is again, way back in the day. Investigators just kind of, they looked at it, they saw it. There was a little bit of an article done about it, but it seems like it kind of got blown off. And I think it kind of got blown off because everybody who was pushing it to be about, everyone I think was looking at every murder and just filing it under our local serial killer. Everyone wanted every case to be about BTK. If it was a brutal murder, BTK had to have done it. And then, you know, 20 years later, they come to find out, hey, Dennis Rader had nothing to do with it. And now you're trying to find evidence and you're trying to find tips. And to me, that's too little too late. So you have to go back to square one. Let's look at all of these pieces of evidence and try to bring them together. And there is nothing too small that you can't talk about and see if it flags something in people's memories. So let's talk about this carved message at the Cessna Fluid Productions plant. And it looks like it was found around May 13th, back in 1977. Looks like it was this really crude kind of graffiti that somebody had done in this bathroom. And we're going to post pictures of it. In fact, I believe I have been on my social media over the last few days. And it had like these really crude um, depictions. And then it also had the message, I killed Gail Sorensen. And again, at the time, Reno County Sheriff's Captain, he had dismissed the graffiti as a product of someone with a morbid or misconstrued sense of humor. But, you know, we realize sometimes people post things or people will say things and almost in everything, there could be a kernel of the truth. Even when someone is looking for attention, it could be someone stating a little kernel of truth in that. So you have to look into everything.
In looking into this matter, the Hutchison's News had also uncovered that the Reno County Sheriff's Department had contacted the Behavioral Sciences Unit at the FBI and had requested a profile be completed about the killer of Gail Sorensen. One of my concerns, though, however, is that this psychological profile just led everyone back to BTK. And even Police Captain Heitschmidt had said they can't provide us with names, but they may be able to pinpoint the type of person we're looking for. And, of course, I'm thinking a white male in his 20s to 30s and blah, blah, blah. You know how it goes. Now, the drawing, which was found by a Cessna employee that was carved in the plyboard of one of the bathrooms, in capital letters, someone had scrawled, the stalker above the hooded figure and inside the person printed i killed gail Sorensen" with the initials printed b in below it and i'm just really hoping that they did take the time to talk to employees with the initials of b in because also around that period of time another man had phoned the radio station KWBW and had a discussion about the Gail Sorensen case. They had a three hour discussion with the radio station about the Gail Sorensen case. Not only that, they stated that they were an employee at Cessna. Now, I don't know how many of you know, but Gail Sorensen had worked for KWHK Radio until the summer prior to her murder. So there just seems to be a lot of connections here. Just continue to discount whenever even Hutchison News was looking at this. They just continued to state, yeah, we just, we really don't know if any of this had any links, but hey, there was one point where they said, if you think you have something, take a piece of paper, just write in the corner of the piece of paper and tear it and send it in to us. And that was probably the most asinine thing I'd ever seen. That, that was just crazy. But hey, it's the 70s. Things were a little weird. At the time, as well as KBI agent Floyd Bradley, they continued to state the graffiti was inconclusive and I am hoping that the Reno County Sheriff's Department has decided to go back to square one and realize that there could be a lot of meat on this bone. There could be a lot of stuff that was discounted earlier. And I really hope they're looking at the similarities between the Gail Sorensen case and the Mary Krepper case because I do see a lot of similarities between these cases. Yes, I do know that grocery stores, Dollar Generals, Walmarts, those are the hunting grounds for a lot of bad people when it comes to women. Women are often in those areas and that's where these guys seem to go. But beyond that, when you look at the sketches, when you look at a lot of these other things, there are so many similarities between these two cases. And you see, to me, a person who is 
crafting their MO. And we're going to continue to look at this. We are continuing to draw on this. And what we are doing is we are hoping to reach out to our listeners. To any of our listeners that may work at Cessna, to any of those listeners who worked at the Cessna fluid plant in Hutchison, who worked around the area in Hutchison, for any of those who may have known somebody who at the time in 1977, in 1979, who may be able to make any correlations, who may have recognized somebody who may, looking back on it reflectively, as somebody who may have been behaving a little bit differently as anything, anything you can think of, anything that you might be able to remember that is different, anything that you think might be helpful in the case. You know, we want you to look at those. That's why we do these podcasts. That's why we bring these cases back up. That's why we are constantly sharing this information. We think there might be something more here, and we want you to be able to share that information and to get justice for Mary Krepper's family, for Gal Sorensen's family, and for Mary Krepper and for Gal Sorensen. These cases may be from the 70s, but they are no less needing justice than the cases that happened last week. For those of you who might have information regarding the murder of Gail Sorensen, please contact Captain Sean McClay or Detective Diana Skolmall with the Reno County Sheriff's Department at 620-694-2735. If you wish to remain anonymous, you can call 620-694-2666 or 1-800-222-TIPS. If you wish to have, if you wish to contribute any information on the Mary Krupper case, or you have a tip, or anything that you think might be helpful, please call the Wichita Police Department Cold Case Detective Addie Perkins at 316-268-4379 or Detective Robert Chisholm at 316-268-4609. As always, you can go to Uncovered.com. That is where we continue to log any information we have on any of these cold cases. We try to do everything we can to try to keep these cases as up-to-date as possible. We do everything we can working with Uncovered to try to keep these cases up to date for fellow podcasters, for anybody trying to assist on these cold cases. Because as we've said, we want to get information out there and we want to get justice for the victims and their families. So if you have anything that can move these cases forward, please contact these tip lines, contact these detectives, and let's try to get justice for these families. Thanks for listening.